Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, are you pursuing the three transcendentals? Uh, Ken, what do you mean by transcendentals? Are we going to get some kind of out-of-body experience here or what? <laughs> Well, I, I'm I'm hoping not. Uh, I I I want to I want I want to keep us orthodox in our theology here. But uh, really, the transcendentals are a very exciting uh, idea, a very exciting uh, topic, and of course, it relates to the way uh, the ancient Christians and and even ancient non-Christians, and I'm going to talk a bit about that, but how they looked at the world, that they saw truth, goodness, and beauty as being grounded in the very nature and attributes of God, but but also being reflected in the way that God had made the world. So I want to continue our discussion of worldview. And uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about the transcendentals and how meaningful they can be for us. Wonderful. All right. Well, let's hear well, uh, you know, I think when you talk about uh, these transcendentals and and, and again, I, I think it's helpful to kind of think about uh, our present culture, our present kind of zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. You know, we, we live at a time where we talk a lot uh, about uh, issues relating to things in our culture. We, we talk about race. We talk about gender. We talk about class. Those are very important topics, but, but they're also very controversial. I think if you went back uh, to the medieval world, to the ancient world, Joe, uh, Christians would by and large see that the, the, the way the world is framed is through these transcendentals, truth, goodness, and, and beauty. And um, what's interesting is that Plato and Aristotle talked about these ideas. So this isn't this isn't a Christian. This isn't merely a Christian perspective. Uh, Plato and Aristotle thought that these values were were in existence in the world, and and they believed that human beings had the capacities, the qualities that were able to apprehend truth, goodness, and beauty. Uh, we, we've used the expression. Uh, uh, logos, ethos, and pathos. Mm -hmm. Well, Plato and Aristotle thought that uh, that the way you get at truth is through logos, and the way you get at goodness is through ethos, and, and the way you get at beauty is through pathos. And they believed that the, the way you oriented yourself toward a fulfilling life, a, a life well-lived, a life of fulfillment, was, was connecting with these truths. And of course, what's interesting there is that Plato and Aristotle lived 2,500 years ago, and Greek philosophers were certainly not Christian in orientation. You know, the, the Greeks didn't have a, an appreciation for the fallenness of human beings. They didn't believe in a, in a sinful condition. And there, there doesn't appear to be any evidence that Plato and Aristotle ever had any uh, any connection to a Hebrew Bible, uh, even even though uh, today when we look at uh, 
when we think of Plato and Aristotle, they are in many ways uh, what I would call allies to the Christian faith. They believed that there was a God, um, again, not the not necessarily the God of the of the Bible. Uh, although my teacher and friend Ronald Nash, a very distinguished Christian philosopher, he believed that uh, that Plato was clearly a theist that the that the that the uh, the the form of the good, which was the the ultimate. Uh, Ron Ron Nash used to make a case that. Plato's description was very similar to a theistic view of God. So these ideas of truth, goodness, and beauty, they go back a long way. And the way the Greek thinkers thought about them was that they were timeless, that they were universal, and that they described the very ultimate nature of being. And so so timeless meant that not only did it not just apply to one particular culture, but it applies to all cultures. But also by timeless, they thought that truth, goodness, and beauty was beyond the time-space world. These were, these were realities. They were, they were objective. They weren't invented. They weren't merely uh, subjective. And they were universal. And I think how how much in contrast that is to kind of our postmodern culture, where when we think about truth, goodness, and beauty, uh, often today people say truth. Well, everybody has their own truth. Goodness, well, that's just your moral opinion. Uh, beauty, well, it's it's only in the, the eye of the beholder. But the ancient Greek philosophers, they believed that truth, goodness, and beauty were objective. And uh, they were universal. Now, what happened, of course, is that uh, Christian philosophers picked up this idea of, of the transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty. People like St. Augustine and uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, the great Catholic philosopher, they picked up these ideas. And they also believed that these were timeless, universal, you know, ultimate descriptions of, of being. And I think in many respects, uh, this is something that's kind of missing in our culture. Uh, in, in, instead of thinking about life in terms of truth, goodness, and beauty, we, we seem to have, you know, uh, adopted a, a very different uh, uh, prism in, in that kind of context. Hmm. Now, um, one of the things that I like to say uh, is that is that I think philosophy has deep value in life. I, I know there are plenty of people that uh, question whether philosophy has much application, but I believe it really does. And, you know, when I was uh, a younger man, I had real questions about life. Um, I wanted to know what was real. I wanted to know what was right. I wanted to know what was lovely. I, I remember as a young man going down to uh, Seal Beach, uh, which is was the, the beach that we always went to here in Southern California. And I remember seeing the ocean and, and thinking to myself, where did all this water come from? And, and why, why is the world the way it is? And there was something about the ocean that made me, it, it, it kind of left me with a longing. It left me with a desire that, wow, uh, 
what what are the ultimate answers you know to to these kinds of of realities i don't know if either one of you had that that kind of orientation but those questions were were deeply on my mind and what i like about philosophy is that philosophy encourages you to ask those questions hmm. um joe for for me it was is this water too cold to go swim in? <laughs> or is there going to be a jellyfish that's going to attack me? Or So I don't know if those are the same kinds of questions. No, they're not. But uh, anyway. Well, yeah. they're, the, the, those are real questions, yeah. right? Those but, are... but, you, but you're right in that when you're sitting there on the sand and when you go to the beach, you're there for a long time, you do start to think about things and you can't help but see how vast that expanse is in front of you and, and it does make you wonder like uh, how far is it to you know that that country or that island or that continent or uh you know uh, how long would it take to take a boat or you know how much water is there <laughs> so yeah I, I remember thinking about that in a different way the uh friend of mine got a big kick out of the fact that when we would sit and look out at the ocean i would ask the question you think you could figure out how many water molecules there are in the ocean? <laughs> and he would just kind of shake his head and, oh my. <laughs> well, uh, I don't think I ever asked that question, but but that was a good one, Dave. Um, you know, I I, I want to come to this idea of of longing and 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 hoping. I I, I think of uh, I think of C.S. Lewis when he you know, grew up in Ireland. Uh, he was exposed to a lot of natural beauty. And I, I think it's uh, very likely that it was his encounter with nature where he came up with all these ideas, uh, these talking animals that would be part of, of Narnia. But, but C.S. Lewis said that it was this encounter with nature that kind of left him longing and, uh, you know, he, he didn't have a fulfillment of it, but it was something that was kind of uh, deep within him. And what I like to say is I think when people ask questions about reality, what's real, they're really asking questions about truth. And in the ancient and medieval world, the view of truth was called the correspondence view. That's different than it is today in many respects. Uh, a correspondence view of truth was that if if your ideas matched reality, then you had the truth, then you knew the truth. Uh, Dave, in a mathematical context, if, if I know that uh, two plus two equals four, and if in fact it does equal four, then I know the truth. If my beliefs correspond to reality, I think as well, when people ask what's right, and I did ask those questions as a young man, um, I, had, I had heard about Christianity. I questioned certain ideas about morality, but, but I wanted to live a life that was, that was right, and I, I believed it was in a moral context. Well, there I was asking questions of goodness. And then finally, the, this question about beauty, um, it's an intriguing idea. And of course, what I quickly began to appreciate is that, that people can look very beautiful on the outside and then maybe not be so beautiful on the inside. You know, and as a young man, I was attracted to uh, 
beautiful women. And uh, I began to realize even within myself that uh, there is an outward appearance and there is a, an inward appearance. So I think that the reason human beings ask these questions about truth, goodness, and beauty is because that's the way we're oriented. And that really kind of leads to uh, a Christian perspective on these kinds of things. Now, part of the Christian worldview, and, and of course, if we think about it in four successive events, we, you know, you can think about a worldview as a cluster of beliefs, your view of God, your view of the world, your view of knowledge, your view of morality, values, etc. But you can also think of the Christian worldview in terms of these events, creation, fall, uh, redemption, consummation, and a critical part of that creation from a from a biblical perspective is that human beings are made in the image of God. Now, what's fascinating to me is that uh, there's only about half a dozen references to the image of God in the Bible. It's not talked about a great deal. But I think if you read and study scripture, you begin to realize that it's kind of a foundational teaching that underlies uh, what Christians think and, and, and how they should live. Now, now, of course, with the Imago Dei, there is controversy with it. What, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And uh, I like to point out that uh, there are kind of three broad perspectives. There are probably more than that, but there's kind of three broad perspectives as to what it means to be made in the image of God. Probably the oldest view, the, the traditional view, I think certainly the view that, that uh, Augustine and Aquinas held, was that we resemble God. Uh, now, of course, when we say we re resemble God, it's in a finite and uh, temporal way. God is infinite and eternal, but we resemble God. Um, we have intellectual capacities. We have moral capacities. Uh, we we are a person who can. We have we have aesthetic capacities, etc. Now, I think what's interesting is that there are two other views that are probably more popular today. One of them is, uh, instead of resemblance, it would be relational. And I like that view because I think human beings are social creatures where we love to relate to each other. Uh, part of our fundamental fulfillment in life is being in relationship with other people, people who are put in prison in isolation, uh, ultimately go mad, they go insane. Uh, we're meant to be around people and to be social creatures. Uh, and of course, what I like most about that second description of the Imago Dei that were relational is that it is really an analogy of the Trinity, that within the Godhead, there is Father, Son, and Spirit. There is an eternal uh, community. There is diversity of persons within the unity of God's one ultimate nature. And I love that. Now, the, the third one, and again, maybe the most popular today, is uh, another R. Instead of resemblance and relational, it's representative. Uh, that from a biblical standpoint, we're made in the image of God, and it's reflected in our ability to uh, be God's vice regents. We act 
uh, in God's authority. And that is a that is a critical idea. Now, the way I reconcile all that, and uh, again, there's controversy, people take different positions. You could also, for example, say that because you're made in the image of God, you 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 act in particular ways. You're a lover and a worshiper. That that was very that was something that St. Augustine emphasized that being made in the image of God made you a worshiper of God and a lover of God. But when sin came along, you didn't stop being a worshiper and a lover. You became a, an idolater. You became an adulterer. Mm. You, instead of worship God, you worshiped any other thing. And instead of loving God, you loved other than God. Now, I, I think a way of kind of pulling all that together is I, I think that we are relational and we represent God and we are worshipers and lovers because we do resemble God. And this is how that relates to the idea of truth, goodness, and beauty. Because we are intellectual beings, we long for the truth. Because we're moral beings, we long for goodness. And because we're aesthetic beings, we long for, for beauty. And so what I think is very powerful here is this idea, and I, I read this in, in some of Ann Gager's work. She is a, a, a scientist. She is a, a fellow for the Discovery Institute. I interact with her a little bit on Facebook, but she said this. She says, these abstract concepts of truth, goodness, and beauty, they correspond to our deepest desires. So this is this is for me a very powerful argument for god and for the truth of the god of the bible and for christianity and that is i think any worldview or any philosophical system any description a, a big picture description of the nature of reality i think if it can explain human beings then i think that there is a high degree of plausibility that it's true and I, I would agree with C.S. Lewis. I, I really do think that we're intellectual creatures and we long for truth. Uh, even in the midst of a postmodern culture, I think people at times feel very uncomfortable with relativistic views of truth. Your truth, my truth, post-truth. I think people as well, as being made in the image of God, we have a moral nature. And Dave, as you like to point out, um, something's gone wrong there. We, we long for goodness, but we're not good. Uh, we violate the commandments of, of, of God. And, and I think adding that third feature of an aesthetic sense of, of beauty. So, this is that kind of foundational way of thinking for a Christian perspective that that God, God is ultimately truth, goodness, and beauty. And 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 uh, I, I want to come back to that and make another point, but let me say this: God is truth, goodness, and beauty. But when he created the world, he imbued the world. Uh, he permeated the world with signs of truth, goodness, and beauty. And then he made us in his image 
since he is the ultimate truth, goodness, and beauty, the ground of it, he made us like him, and we're able to uh, hunt and gather truth, goodness, and beauty. So insofar as we are created in God's image, we can uh, display or uh, uh, what's the right word? We can provide evidence of truth, goodness, and beauty. And it's a reminder that we are created in God's image. So it, it should put our focus upward, should it not? Yes. And I, and, and I think, again, kind of echoing those four philosophers that I mentioned briefly, Plato and Aristotle, um, uh, Augustine and, and Aquinas, they all of them would say that our ultimate fulfillment, uh, our happiness, our, to use Aristotle's word, eudaimonia, is dependent on us coming into contact with, with truth, goodness, and beauty. And if we stand at odds with it, then there is a fundamental clash uh, in our own personal kind of relationships. Now, let me, Dave, jump in. Well, I just think this is a great way of thinking about what it means to be made in the image of God. I, I mean, I appreciate the previous three R's uh, that you called attention to here, but this, this gets down to the very meat, the, the very heart of what God is like and what he made us to be like. And of course, the, the way in which it's been corrupted by the fall. But I, I, I like it. You know, let, let's let's talk a little bit more about these transcendentals. Again, they are timeless. So uh, uh, that means they're beyond time and space, but it also means that uh, they're not given to any particular time. They don't go out of favor. They don't go out of fashion, if you will. They're universal. So they're not just Greek ideas. They're not just Christian ideas. The, these are these are universal principles and and uh, concepts. Now, one of the points I want to make as we again think about the Christian worldview is what is God's relationship to these transcendentals? I don't think we should think that somehow God created truth, goodness, and beauty. Uh, that would be kind of uh, more of a Platonic perspective. You know, Plato believed that. There were these abstract ideas, and the form of the good, the, the greatest of, of these transcendental forms, would have been the form of the good, which in many ways was similar to a biblical God. But I think a better way of thinking about this is that truth, goodness, and beauty, those are the very uh, characteristics of God himself, mm -hmm. and they flow from his nature when he creates the world, he creates through that prism of his nature. So in the natural world, in the physical world, we will see these truths. And as we uh, also talked about, uh, I think they're reflected in who we are as, uh, as bearers of the image. Now, let me go a little bit further in, in this application of how human beings uh, or oriented and have the have a value orientation. Um, how do we go about apprehending truth? Well, uh, again, we're intellectual beings. The mind is the organ of truth. 
So we use our mind to apprehend truth, to, to hunt and gather truth, if you will, and we're able to have knowledge. Uh, philosophers have typically defined knowledge as justified true belief. That is, I believe something. Uh, it is, it is true. It is, uh, I, I believe something. Uh, it is true, and I have reason to believe that it's true. Uh, I can also use my will or my conscience to hunt and gather goodness. And goodness, a byproduct of, of goodness is virtue. With regard to uh, another aspect of our humanist emotion and imagination, uh, we're able to engage beauty. And to quote, uh, quote C.S. Lewis, that beauty gives us a, a sense of joy. So again, I think that this is a very powerful way of thinking about the image of God. I think it also complements the idea that Christians, and not just Christians, but also believing Jews, who we, we, we have the Judeo-Christian worldview after all, Christians borrow much from traditional uh, ancient Judaism, so this idea is that I, I think Christians and Jews have a very plausible uh, humanity, which, which again makes me think it's true. So just to summarize that thinking, because human beings are made in the image of God, um, unlike the animals and unlike the machines, you know, lots of discussion about artificial intelligence, Human beings, because we are made in the image of God, we can know the truth. We can desire the good, and we can we can love the beautiful. And I think that that's something that fundamentally separates us from the animals. Uh, animals are remarkable. By the way, animals do some things a lot better than we do. I mean, you know, animals seem to be able to navigate the natural world in remarkable ways. You know, the, the strength of their senses, uh, you know, a, that a bear can smell food miles away. Uh, animals have just raw strength and speed, and yet animals can't read. Animals don't seem to have the capacity to, to, to reflect. They don't have conversations. As, as Mortimer Adler says, they, they send signals to each other. I, I love watching my dogs. And, uh, you know, they, 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 they seem to have real affection toward each other. But if you bring out a bone, uh, they send a message. You know, that's my bone. And uh, the message, it comes out in the form of a growl. You know? <laughs> well, human beings are able to know the truth, uh, desire the good, and, uh, and, and love the, the beautiful. And... Again, I, I think that this is such a contrast to the world and the zeitgeist, the culture of today, mm -hmm. where today truth, goodness, and beauty are not viewed as timeless. They're not viewed as universal. Th these, are, these are things that human beings, rather than discovering them, they've invented them. Mm -hmm. uh, and they invented them because it gives people power. And truth, goodness, and beauty are relative, and their their context, uh, you know, on your experience. 
So what a very different way of looking at human beings and looking at the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, it seems like uh, you have a nice argument here for God in that uh, he created human beings with the ability to apprehend truth, goodness, and beauty because we are created in his image. So maybe that might be a, a bridge builder to those who hold a postmodern view to try to get them to see that they too can apprehend truth, goodness, and beauty if they kind of get out of this zeitgeist a little bit and maybe they're challenged on these ideas. And, and that's why I think, Joe, that thinking in a worldview way is is so important to, you know, to, in our discussions with people who hold very different views, a different worldview, uh, you know, whether they be people who hold a different religious worldview or a secular worldview, um, what is the prism by which they view the world? And why is humanity so darn unhappy? Why, why are we so miserable? Um, why can't we seem to, you know, to, to move the human race forward, so to speak? Now, I also want to develop this a bit further and, and again, talk about God and his relationship to the transcendentals. I think that when you think about truth, goodness, and beauty, we're tempted to think that those are three different things. And, and in one sense, they are. They, they reflect, uh, you know, truth is talking about the ultimate nature of reality, and, and goodness is, is a moral context. And certainly, uh, beauty relates to the aesthetic kind of sense. But, but I also think that there's something interesting here in that these three values, they kind of interrelate and interpenetrate with one another. Um, and, and what I mean by that, uh, you know, you may like goodness and beauty, but what if they're not true? Mm. Uh, or you, you may, uh, you, you know, you may like beauty, but what if beauty has an absence of goodness? I mean, it's very common uh, in the human context to, to be attracted to uh, the, the external part of human beings. But then there is the question, well, what does that person look like within, within the soul? Um, I, you know, I, I, if I could talk about my wife for a moment, I, I was attracted to my wife's be natural beauty, the way she looked. But once I got to know her, I thought, wow, I, I'm more impressed by what's inside. I was impressed by her empathy. That, that she cared about other people. And when other people hurt, she hurt. And I thought, wow. Um, I, I was also impressed with how my wife could forgive. And I thought, that does, that's not an easy thing for me. How can I, how can I be more like that? Well, th again, these are, these are qualities and characteristics that could I, could I propose that maybe we have an analogy for the Trinity? Hmm. That, that just as God is one in being and three in person, Father, Son, and Spirit, that truth, goodness, and beauty, while they seem to be three, they're also kind of one. And they, they kind of interpenetrate uh, in, a, in a way that Christian theology says about uh, God. 
Now, I also want to say that I think that this is very appealing for another reason, and that is that if God is truth, goodness, and beauty, and if he has imbued his creation, including us, with truth, goodness, and beauty, then when you encounter truth, whatever it may be, the truth of mathematics, the truth of physics, the truth of philosophy, you get a little closer to the God of truth. When you, uh, all truth is God's truth. When you can relate it to morality, all goodness is, is God's goodness. All beauty is, is, is God's beauty. And I think that that kind of, it, it speaks of a two books idea. And, and, and again, I have made this, I've made this point many times on our program that one of the times when I had my deepest doubts was when I was a very young Christian and I thought there seems to be a gap between, between philosophy and knowledge on one hand and faith and church on the other. And I, I thought, you know, I'm, I, I like to think that I'm a man of faith and reason, but I don't know that the two can be found within Christianity. And it was the idea of the two books that led me to conclude, no, when I get closer to truth, truth in philosophy, truth in mathematics, whatever that truth is, that I'm getting closer to, to the God of truth. And that faith and reason fit together, you know, that idea. Now, let's talk a little bit about these, uh, these values, these cosmic values, these transcendentals, if, if you will. I, one person who writes and speaks about this in a very eloquent way is the Catholic philosopher Peter Kreeft, uh, spelled K-R-E-E-F-T. It is a Dutch name, pronounced Kreeft. Peter Kreef says, uh, we can never get enough of truth, goodness, and beauty. We can never get enough of it. Um, uh, I think in many ways, uh, if people pursued more truth, goodness, and beauty, if, if their pastime, and, you know, you know, I think that's really interesting. I'm a, I'm a big baseball fan. And, and we call baseball the national pastime. Well, I think football might be the national pastime now, or, you know, uh, food and fashion may be the national pastime. I'm not sure which. Uh, maybe Netflix is the national pastime. Hmm. But, you know, people have, uh, there, there is a part of one's life. And, um, you know, Peter Crave says, uh, how much truth do you want? How much goodness do you want? How much beauty do you want? Uh, I think the closer we get to these things, the more we feel satisfied uh, as human beings. Now, in a few minutes, I'm going to talk about the fall, and that's going to change the orientation of these things. But here's what Kreef says. He says in terms of good, uh, truth, goodness, and beauty, he says goodness is first in value. That is, we, we seem to really gravitate toward the idea of goodness. You know, uh, 30 years ago, people, when, I, when I go to the university, students would ask me truth questions. Is Christianity true? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Now they ask me goodness questions. 
Well, you know what? Even if the Bible is true, I don't know if I want to believe in Yahweh, that vindictive God that, that seems to lack goodness. Or they'll say, seems like the God of Moses is very different than the God of Jesus. Well, we care about goodness, but Christ says beauty motivates us the most. Um, again, can I come back to external beauty? Think, think of how people are attracted to beauty. It kind of it kind of reaches inside you. Wow. That's a that's a beautiful painting. With my wife it's natural beauty. You know, she, she wants to, me to go in the backyard and look at the sunset. And it is beautiful, but I want to go and take her to a museum and I want her to see a a a, a classical Christian painting. But beauty has a way, uh, Christ says, of motivating us. But then he says this, and I think it's fascinating. He says that truth trumps goodness and beauty. You can have goodness and beauty, but if it's not true, what's it worth? So there is this deep idea of the, this attraction, this allure, if you will, to truth, goodness, beauty. Now, let me go further in the Christian worldview. We've talked about creation and particularly the image of God and how it relates to these cosmic values. Now let me introduce the, the great Christian teaching of the incarnation, that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son, took a human nature and became man. And so Jesus is, for the Greek Christians, the theanthropos. Theos, God, Anthropos, man. Jesus is a single person with both the divine and human natures. Now, um, here's a quote from Alistair McGrath, one of my uh, favorite theologians, um, a remarkable person who wrote a remarkable book about C.S. Lewis. McGrath has three doctoral degrees, all from Oxford University, one in divinity, one in intellectual history, and I think his science degree is in biophysics. Um, what, how many hours uh, has McGrath spent in a classroom? Uh, remarkable thing. But this is what he says. He says, Christian tradition affirms that all that is true, all that, it, all that is true, beautiful, and good finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now, I love that. And I think that's what attracted me initially to Christianity. When I heard about Jesus, and when I began actually reading the Gospels for myself, I saw a person uh, of which I had never seen before. And I immediately recognized that Jesus was not like all other people. And the more I've studied other people like Krishna and Siddhartha Gautama and Confucius and the Buddha and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, that none of them are able to be fairly, you know, to be compared fairly with, with Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus seems to, he seems to be truth, goodness, and beauty in human flesh. I mean, recently I took a vacation and I, I read about, I read through the Gospels again. I, I just, I wanted to read them again. I wanted to see if I saw what I had seen before. I also wanted to know, since the Bible is the greatest of all great books, maybe I'll see something new. And I saw, again, Jesus Christ is truth, goodness, and beauty incarnate. 
if you want to know what's true and what's good and what's beautiful, you you see it in in the Lord Jesus Christ. And 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 again, uh, I've read other people. I've I think Confucius is one of the great teachers and philosophers in history. I think Socrates is one of the great teachers of humanity. But uh, with all due respect to people who are critical of the New Testament, I think a powerful argument that God exists is that Jesus was the Son of God. Now, uh, in light of creation and incarnation, let me now introduce the bad news, the fall. Um, I, I think that I am, uh, I'm kind of St. Augustine's bulldog. Now, I, I don't like to think I have a bulldog personality, but some, some people think I do. Um, but I am kind of St. Augustine's bulldog. That is, St. Augustine taught certain things that I think are so critical that I, I have to defend them in a day in which people challenge them. And one of them is original sin. That, that Adam and Eve used their will to rebel against God. They, they saw the beauty of the apple but they seem to forget about the goodness of God. And they, they crashed themselves and were alienated from God. And original sin says that since they were our representatives, we also sinned in Adam. And so we have, uh, we're alienated from God. We have a corrupt moral nature and we, we all die because of original sin. Now, I, I don't want to give the impression that all Christians believe in original sin. Uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, a major branch of Christendom, they say, well, we have a proclivity to sin, but we didn't sin in Adam. We're not guilty in Adam. And so a lot of people push back on that. But let me use that as a taking off point here. Uh, there's another Latin expression that Augustine was fond of, and so was Martin Luther, kind of the father of the Protestant Reformation. It was the Latin expression, incurvitas se, incurvitas se. Uh, Augustine and, and Luther said that what, what happens when human beings are fallen is they become curved in on themselves. So narcissism and selfishness reigns. Instead of loving, instead of being oriented and pointed toward God, worshiping God and loving God, because we're turned in toward ourselves, we love and worship ourselves. And if I can be so bold, I think one of the common experiences in being a sinner is that we use other people for our own validation. We, we get lost in ourselves rather than, rather than getting lost in, in, in God and in his goodness. So, Here's the bad news. As sinners, you and me, uh, we have, uh, to use a biblical bookkeeping analogy, and I think an analogy that is powerfully presented in the Apostle Paul's writings, particularly in Romans and Galatians, but in other places as well, that there's a bookkeeping analogy here. And the bookkeeping analogy, I'm going to use it in the context in which we live, um, 
I don't carry a lot of cash anymore. Uh, I carry a debit card and, uh, you know, there's debit and credit. And when I go to the, when I go to the, the uh, gas station, I have to take out a second on my mortgage to get a tank of gas these days, mm. but I use my debit card. And uh, when I go to the grocery store, also a very expensive experience these days, I use my debit card and, and uh, I have to be able to have credit in the bank to be able to, to use it as a debit card. Well, uh, here is the bookkeeping analogy of the Bible that I think is very powerful. You and I, as, as sinners, uh, we've done something to truth, goodness, and beauty. Namely, we've, uh, we've made it into falsity, badness, and ugliness. So it's no longer truth, goodness, and beauty. Uh, there are signs of it. There are elements of it. We're not as bad as we could possibly be, but we're curved in on toward ourselves. And so, so we've mixed truth with falsity. We, we've, we've mixed goodness with, with badness. We've mixed beauty with ugliness. And all we have is debit. Now, of course, the good news is that our Savior, Jesus Christ, as we described him, he, he doesn't have any debits. He can stand before his family and before the Jewish religious community and before Pontius Pilate and ask the, the incredible question, can any of you find any, any fault with me? I always wanted to do that in front of my family on Thanksgiving morning, but I thought it probably wouldn't be a good idea. Hmm. Um, but Jesus can do it. He doesn't have any fault. He doesn't have any debit. He has all credit. He has perfect truth, goodness, and beauty. And what happens in salvation, and again, this is the bookkeeping analogy, and this is the analogy in, that's so prominent in the book of Romans and Galatians, and that is that there's a transaction that what happens through the life, death, and, Jesus, life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he takes our debit. And he gives us his credit. He takes my, my falsity. He takes my badness and my ugliness. And he not only does that and, and suffers the wrath of God on my behalf, but he then imputes truth and goodness and beauty to me. Now, in a practical way, I'm, I haven't quite arrived with truth, goodness, and beauty but God sees me the way he sees his son. God sees me as, as representing, you know, truth, goodness, and beauty. Now, that's a very, I think, Joe, a very powerful way of not only thinking about these transcendentals, but also thinking of their application and redemption. I wonder what you're thinking. Yeah, well, I was uh, tracking with interest when you started to talk about uh, how we've uh, fallen and we have a debit, falsity, badness, and ugliness. But Christ has come to do his work uh, and given us his credit, truth, goodness, and beauty, and taken on our debit uh, and put it uh, forever away. We don't have that debit anymore. We, we have credit now. So I like the salvation transaction. It's a kind of cool, nice way to, to think about it. You know, whenever you can have another way of thinking about what Christ has done for us, I, I think it's 
it's good. It's good to dwell on dwell on those things. You know what's what's I think very powerful is uh, you know to 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 be a forgiven sinner. Now now we're talking post. Now we've embraced Christ. We've heard the gospel message. We've we've engaged this transaction, and and we have been the beneficiary of being given the righteousness of Christ to have Christ's righteousness imputed. If we think of truth, goodness, and beauty, that's good. And we've had our our falsity and our badness and our ugliness taken away. And as Christians, we we stand with confidence that in the eyes of God, he sees us the way he sees his son, as if as if we're we are genuinely uh true, good, and beautiful. Now, um of course, we also have to think about the Christian life now. Uh, though I stand before God as if I were true, good, and beautiful, uh, I still struggle in my daily Christian life with with uh, with falsity. I still struggle in my Christian life with badness, uh, breaking the commandments. Uh, I I still have an ugliness to myself. And of course, uh, in in a biblical context, and and this comes out, I think, especially in in kind of classical Protestant theology, that this is that sanctification process. Mm-hmm. That I have been a, I have been given truth, goodness, and beauty, but I am also being transformed toward truth, goodness, and beauty. I wish it were a quicker process. I wish it were a less painful process. But I, I think you can see again, Joe, here in a Christian worldview, that that Christians are kind of, Christians kind of live in a time of tug of war, where we want to we want to be we want to fulfill truth, goodness, and beauty, but we still struggle with with uh, falsity and badness and ugliness. We have been told by the gospel message that we, God views us as totally forgiven. But there is this process. And in a practical way, you know, sometimes I think, well, how can I, how can I think more about my sanctification? How can I think more about the way I live my life? And one way I've thought in light of this is, can I look at my life and think of ways in which I can get closer to truth, goodness, and beauty? Or does does do the things that occupy my life, how do they relate to truth, goodness, and beauty? Do they relate more to truth, goodness, and beauty? Or do they relate more to falsity and badness and, and ugliness? Hmm. And can, can, go ahead, Joe. Sorry. Uh, another question for you regarding beauty. Uh, let's say there's somebody out there who might be thinking as as I am that um, I'm not sure I'm seeing God's beauty because I think I'm seeing the beauty of God's creation. That's all around and I, I understand that and I love it. But how do I distinguish so I'm not, uh, how do I put this like worshiping the creation rather than the creator? How do you how do you reason through that? No, I think that's I think that's right on target that that God, truth, goodness, and beauty are grounded in God. They, they reflect his eternal attributes. Um, God is 100% truth, goodness, and beauty. Jesus is 100% truth, goodness, and beauty in human flesh. 
But the creation itself emanates that truth, goodness, and beauty. You should be attracted to the, the world. Of course, in a fallen context, you become, instead of lovers and worshipers of God, you become idolaters and adulterers, where we, as Paul says in Romans 1, we, we worship the natural world rather than the creator, and we stand c condemned in that kind of context. But I think this is giving us a pretty good, reliable picture. There's a lot of truth, goodness, and beauty in the natural world. It is, it's understandable to be attracted to it. But then remember, I mean, Joe, you're a, you love nature. You love the natural world. You, I, I've been around you. I've been in nature with you. I can tell it energizes you. You, you love it. Um, well, there's something behind that element of nature. There is truth, goodness, and beauty in its infinite and eternal form. And, and to, to worship nature is to, is to, it's to be an idolater because you're missing the real thing. And that, of course, I think leads me to a point I want to make here, and that is, you know, as Christians, we talk about justification, that bookkeeping analogy, right? Then we talk about sanctification. Yeah, I still struggle with ugliness and badness and, uh, you know, um, messiness and all of those three, falsity. But then there's then there is uh, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And Christians for centuries, uh, Augustine, uh, Aquinas, uh, Protestant theologians, uh, Orthodox theologians have talked about the beatific vision. And beatific is a is a Latin term that that means blissful. That is. Um, God has uh, taken away our our falsity and our badness and our ugliness. He has given us truth, goodness, and beauty, and he is transforming us toward truth, goodness, and beauty. But there's another one, and that is someday we are going to encounter God face to face. Um, I like to put it this way, because of God's grace, Grace means unmerited favor. Grace means God gives you a gift and you don't deserve it and you could never earn it, but he gives it to you. And that grace is in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And in the eschatological future, in the next world, when creation, fall, redemption, we've talked about all three, Imago Dei and creation, fall, our nature has been defaced. Uh, redemption, God, truth, but beauty, and goodness come in, in, in the incarnate person of Christ. But we will know truth, goodness, and beauty face to face. And and Joe, here is just a a couple passages. Uh, Matthew five eight G, in Jesus's own words, he says, "Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God." Now. Uh, God makes people pure in heart. Um, we are not pure in heart in and of ourselves, but 
he has he has uh, taken away our impurity he's transforming us toward purity and because we are pure in heart we will be able to see god to encounter god directly this blissful experience this this ultimate fulfillment but people who are not pure in heart people who have not had their uh, debit taken away and have don't have the credit of christ they can't stand in the presence of god and therefore they will suffer hell they'll suffer the wrath of god here's another passage this is first corinthians 13 12 for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror then we shall see face to face now i know in part then i shall know fully even as i'm fully known paul says we'll see it and then finally the book of revelation an eschatological and apocalyptic reference john says they will see his face in revelation 22 4. We're, we'll encounter truth goodness and beauty and the last point i want to make here is this joe that you know when i talk with secular people they the, the philosophers that i know who are secular they will sometimes say, and this is reflected in the New Atheists, they'll say, man, what kind of ego trip is Yahweh on when he wants us to worship him? Hmm. But my, my answer to that is, think about who God is. Complete perfection of truth, goodness, and beauty. Why wouldn't you worship it? So this is, this is one way of thinking about those transcendentals, those cosmic values, those things we have as timeless, as, as universal, as grounds of being. This is the way we think of them in, in creation. Uh, they're, they're grounded in God. They're attributes of God's being. I think they are analogy of the Trinity. Um, God permeates his creation with good truth, goodness, and beauty. The fall causes a breakdown of all of that redemption it is restored and then in consummation we find its complete fulfillment and here i echo um i i echo the uh westminster catechism you know what is the chief end of man to 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 know and to enjoy god forever to to know and enjoy face to face to blissfully encounter that being which is perfect truth goodness and beauty why would you why would you ever opt for anything else yeah good point great way to end the podcast thank you ken for those thoughts i i trust they're helpful uh, they certainly are for me um you've written about uh these ideas uh, in blogs and uh, your books as well. So we want to recommend a couple of uh, your books here at the end of the podcast, Christianity Cross-Examined and A World of, Di World of Difference. So if you have not read those books, uh, please pick those up. I appreciate how you always tie it into the Christian worldview. That I find that helpful. You kind of went through the various uh, stages there. So thank you for that. Uh, speaking of your book, Ken, here are some comments that have come in in regard to a world of difference. Uh, people have uh, shown their appreciation. Here's one. A world of difference is a great book. One of my favorites, Dr. Jason Neal 
Associate Professor of Psychology, Anderson University. Appreciate so thank, thank you for that. And now here's another one. A World of Difference is my favorite worldview book. Wow. Matthew Rosenblum. Another comment. Your book, A World of Difference, changed my life along with the Bible. Rebecca Linton. Oh. Well, Ken. Wow. That's what I like to hear. Yeah. <laughs> You're on pretty solid footing there. Uh, I'm sure you uh, will want to uh, say something about uh, the Bible being the, the greatest book, but it's not yeah. bad company, right? That's right. Yes, very much. And here's another one. Uh, Ken, I just recommended your book, A World of Difference, in our apologetics class at seminary. Wow. Dr. John Battle, former president of Western Reform Seminary. One of my favorite contemporary theologians. Yeah, Dr. Yes. Battle. Yeah. Well, those are great uh, compliments, and we've received them well. Thank you for sending them in. Uh, in case you're wondering how to reach Ken, you can find him at his Twitter handle, at RTB underscore case samples. And Ken is on social media. Many of you find him on Facebook where Ken posts thoughts regularly and asks questions. So thanks for chiming in. We'll give you a shout out and read your comment here on the podcast. So keep those coming. If you don't subscribe to the Reasons to Believe podcast, please do so. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. And then you'll get an episode delivered to you each week. For Ken Samples and Rogstad, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.